So, I'm continuing on with our series of uh, lessons from the life of David. I spoke uh, last week about dysfunctional families. Uh, and I said how uh, God can still use people of dysfunctional families to bring the Messiah, Jesus, into the world. God is our Redeemer. And he can use frail, selfish creatures like you and me to carry out his purposes. He's, our, after all, almighty God. He's the one who creates light from darkness. So as I was reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, the other topic that I noticed that was being repeated through the story is that many of the characters uh, have experiences of rejection. Hopefully, there we go. So today I'm going to talk about rejection. Some of the characters, like Saul... Uh, were devastated by rejection, whereas others, like Samuel, seem to take it as a minor irritation. So let's look at why people can have such opposing reactions uh, by being turned aside by others. So let's have a look at Samuel first. He was the very last of the judges. God appointed judges for the budding nation of Israel to lead it, and Samuel was the last of these. But this is how Samuel's rejection came about. And you can read it in 1 Samuel 8. I read it last week. I'll read it again now. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. And they served in Beersheba. But his sons didn't follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You're old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, as they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt unto this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly to let, and let them know what a king will, who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Notice that God points out to Samuel that although the Israelites are rejecting his family, ultimately they're rejecting God as their leader. God didn't rebuke Samuel for being a poor father. He just told him not to take this rejection personally. It reminds him that the Israelites have always been stubborn and rebellious. Samuel was initially angry, but he didn't go into sulk. He seems to take on board God's advice about who was being rejected. Notice how he still carried on with his job as spiritual head of the nation. He calmly listened for God's instructions about who to choose as the king and what to do, what actions the nation should take. He happily anointed others to take over his place because God had chosen them. If you read through Samuel's farewell speech in 1 Samuel 12, I won't read it all today, he says that he had a clean conscience about how he'd led Israel. 
He led them to the best of his ability, and the people agreed with him. Samuel was content just to do as God had told him to do, despite what the others thought about him. Then we move on to Saul. He was the reluctant king. But he became too sidetracked on what other people thought about him. He couldn't listen to God and what God wanted him to do because he was too conscious about other people. He started well, but he soon started to choose his own path, which was guided by what would make him popular, as opposed to what God wanted him to do. And this is passage from 1 Samuel 15, when God tells Samuel that he's rejected Saul as his king. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he's not been loyal to me, and he's refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this, that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul, and someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself, and then he went to Gilgal. Notice how Saul is so focused on himself that he couldn't hear God. Notice that he set up a monument to himself celebrating his victory, the victory that ultimately God had won. We find even today dictators set up images of themselves everywhere, showing people how important they are. It's usually a sign of insecurity. So many of us are hugely influenced by other people's opinion of us. I know that I have been. I worked out that a lot of my insecurity started from my early years when I got to junior school. The junior teachers uh, told me, oh, you're not like Pete, which was my older brother. He was more intelligent and gifted than me. And I thought, oh, I don't match the mark, so I didn't bother. I just turned inward. And I gave up hope of ever matching what my brother was. But God redeemed all of that, of course. Satan intended this to harm and destroy me, but God used this experience to mould me into a better character, to make me a more empathetic, empathetic, empathetic person. Sorry, I get my words all muddled. Like I said last week, God redeems. Saul wasted so much time, so much of his life in a sulk, when God decided enough was enough and he anointed someone else who'd follow his leading. It all started when he heard women singing about David having done greater exploits than his own. It just drove him mad with envy as he tried to get his hands on the man who now had God's blessing, the blessing that he once had, but now it was David's. He'd lost it. Envy is a very corrosive emotion and it does much more harm to you the person who's harboring it than it will for those that you're aiming it at don't expect to drink poison and expect it to harm your enemy it won't but it will kill your soul next I want to look at Jonathan you think that Jonathan would have had bad feelings towards David after all Jonathan was next in line to be king but God had chosen someone else. 
Jonathan, bless him, aided and helped David. He protected him from his father's mad intentions. Jonathan was a good-natured character who was willing to assist and befriend rather than compete and squabble. Jonathan's ego didn't get damaged, even though God had bypassed him. Now we look at David. David had a humble start too. He was the youngest of nine sons. He was almost overlooked when Samuel came to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Samuel looked at David's strong, handsome brothers and was sure that one of them was the one that God had chosen, but no. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees inside us to our hearts and our intentions, beyond what appears on the surface. God had moulded David's character while he was patiently sitting looking after a herd of sheep. He must have practised his slingshot and his harp while he was there on his own in the lonely hours. Eventually he gained a reputation for both of those. These are skills that were harnessed to a strong faith in his God. David developed a trust in God to guide and protect him, whatever he faced. David appears to have a sound grounding for his ego, but as I explained last week, power did corrupt him and his desire for sex brought a complicated, dysfunctional family. David was a flawed character, like you and me, but God understands us and he loves us and he uses us. Around us is a world which competes for acceptance, significance and status. We jostle for position, looking for those who we can impress, those that will give our egos a bit of a tickle. My own bit of minor fame has shown me how fragile our culture can be. Uh, Yeah, but so what? But I found that social media is addictive and very competitive I did dabble with Instagram briefly. I still look at it occasionally, but I don't bother with it because I find it irritating. Everyone on there seems to be saying, like me, I'll like you if you like me, notice me, promote me, accept me, please believe me. All this is ultimate empty vanity. Yes, popularity is nice for five minutes. You feel good about yourself, but those feelings soon disappear and you'll be craving for the next bit of acceptance very soon afterwards. The Freedom in Christ course tells us this. I've put this slide up many times. The world and culture around us tells us that performance and accomplishments make significance, status and recognition are security, and appearance and admiration bring acceptance. But these are all things that we should be getting from God. God accepts us and we should be getting our security and significance in our relationship with him. Now, I've got a short uh, talk by Tim Keller now. Somebody has edited this talk down to about eight minutes. It's a very liberating message. I want you to listen to it carefully. I've listened to this talk many times 
and I get something out of it each time. So please listen to Tim. What's identity? It's a, a sense of self and a sense of worth. What makes you feel significant? What makes you uh, confident of your value? And if you have a, uh, a sense of self and a sense of worth, we say you've got a real identity. It's an illusion to say that my identity comes from my inner feelings. People say it all the time. This is who I am. You decide who you are. Benjamin Nugent, in an essay, the New York Times said this, when good writing was my only goal in life, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. And then he said, for this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad. I needed it for it to be good. In order to feel sane, I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I would have liked to have seen or what I feared to see. In other words, when you make anything your identity, when you make a, a, a career your identity or a particular body your identity or a particular love relationship your identity, those things stop being good things and they start to crush you. Uh, you, you in other words, he wanted to write, that's a good thing, he should have written. But when the writing was his identity, he said, I made the quality of my work, the measure of my worth, and I, co I couldn't, I, to feel sane, I had to look at anything I wrote and said, this is great. So I, I couldn't actually look at it realistically, and I couldn't certainly hear criticism. It's crushing. It's absolutely crushing. You know the place where C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, we're not really proud of having money, we're proud of having more money than the next person? We're not really proud of being smart. We're proud of being smarter. Uh, if you are the best violinist in your little town in Texas, and then you go to New York City, and you get off at Penn Station, and you realize the person who's playing the violin and begging, and people are put throwing you know, money in, in the violin case, is better than you. And suddenly that high self-esteem you had, because you were the best violinist in your town, goes down into the toilet. Why? Because ultimately, any identity that's achieved rather than received has to be excluding. In other words, you feel better because these other people aren't as good as you. These other people aren't as enlightened as you. These other people aren't as liberal as you. These people aren't as conservative as you. These people aren't as hardworking as you. These people aren't as insightful as you. That's how you feel good about yourself, by looking at other people and just and trashing them. And that's how it's going to work. So what kind of identity do we need? Here's what we need. You can't take yourself and bless yourself and name yourself. You need recognition. You need somebody from outside to come in and speak to you. I know we say, no, 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 we don't need that. Of course, we're social beings, we're relational beings. We have to do that. Even when I see people online say, I have done this and my family's rejected me, but I know who I am and this is who I am. And suddenly thousands of people on social media are cheering them. They just got, well, they, they didn't just say, I have decided who I want to be. No, they have a new set of cheerleaders. They just, they just took the old set of cheerleaders and just said, forget it. I want to be part of this set. You have to have a word from outside. Somebody's got to name you. 
And let me go a little further. What kind of person should this be or what kind of people should this be? Well, you need the love and you need the approval and you need the esteem of someone you esteem if you're going to have any self-esteem. This person, whoever it is, should not be someone who could ever let you down or disillusion you. If you get your, uh, your self-worth from the academy or from the art world or from individuals or from a loved one or something like that, what happens when they disillusion you, which they might? Where does your self-worth go? This also can't be a person who's fickle, somebody who's up and down with you, depending on how well you perform. Think about this. If it's really true that the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards, that you only have, only if you have the esteem of someone you esteem will you have self-esteem. Only if you have the adoration of someone who adores you. Then to know that God loves you, the Lord of the universe loves you, that would have to give you the most, the most powerful basis for a stable identity possible. And secondly, is it based on your performance? No. If it's not based on your performance, it's not only stable, but you don't need to look down your nose at everybody else around you. In other words, the excluding aspect of your identity goes away. So how do you get that? You're adopted into God's family. That's a new identity, right? You are a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3.20. That's a new identity, right? You're united to Christ. That's a new identity, right? But I gotta say, when I, when I just talk to you about it like that, in fact, when I just talk to myself about it like that, it's kind of abstract. But Jesus doesn't name us simply by showing up and giving us a new name or saying you're mine. He dies for us. So you lose the excluding aspect of modern identity. So you have something stable. So you have something coherent. So you know who you are. So you have an identity not achieved, which is crushing, but, it's, but received. How do you do that? A, you got to believe he died for you. He says so. I lay down my life for my sheep. He doesn't just show up and give you a name. He, he dies for you. It's got to go to your imagination. It's got to be the aesthetic core of your life. You've got to learn how when you're struggling with what the culture says about your identity because you're not good looking enough, you're not smart enough, you're not having enough transformative sex, you're not this, you're not that. You've got to know how to pick it, pull out your identity in Christ and push it to the top of the deck. And you do that generally through imagination. I had a friend of mine some years ago that realized he was extraordinarily upset about the fact that he went to the kind of schools and he had the kind of background and all of his colleagues had made a tremendous amount of money and had high status and he was in a, in a missionary ministry job and didn't have that kind of status and he realized it was getting at him. He realized he was actually, he needed to put Jesus' identity at the top of his deck, as it were. And he suddenly one day was reading in Philippians chapter 2 where it says in the old King James, though he was, you know, he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation. And it went to the man's heart. And he says, Jesus Christ lost everything. He was crucified outside the gate. He made himself of no reputation. He did that for me. Why in the world am I worried about my status and my reputation? And he was freed. 
See, what he did was he took it to the center of his, of his imagination, not just here I believe it. If you don't get it into your imagination, and if you don't do it regularly, through worship, through thinking, through applying it at the moment, it doesn't go to the top, and, and, you, and you're, you're back into where everybody else is, cultural captivity. How are you getting, through your imagination, what Jesus Christ has done for you, down to a naming level in your heart? If you want to listen to that again, I can uh, send a link to that. It's on YouTube. Just uh, Google uh, or search on YouTube of Tim Keller identity and that will come up. So did you hear that? God loves you and he accepts you. He will never reject you. It does not matter what you think of each other. The only thing that matters is that God adores you. He made you the way that you are, and he thinks that you're wonderful. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He was rejected by man. God the Father had to turn his back on Jesus while he carried the punishment of our sin on the cross. We remembered that earlier. God will never turn his back on you and me because he turned his back on Jesus. Jesus is death brought back a way that we can be in relation, close relationship with God. Try to understand how much you are loved by God. Not for what you do, but for who you are. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4, says, As for me, it matters very little how much I might evaluate... So I'll start again. But as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It's the Lord who will examine me and decide. So basically he's saying, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what I think about myself. God knows who I am and he still loves me. The competition game is over. God will never reject you. Whether you reject him is your decision. So we've got some questions now. Got, did any part of today's talk stand out for you? Do you relate or sympathise with any of the characters in these stories? How much do you think you're influenced by what other people think about you? And how much understanding do you have of God's love and acceptance? And then probably the most important one is pray for each other. You may want private prayer, so please don't go away. If, you've been, if you know that you're affected by rejection, please get prayer from somebody today so that it can be dealt with and God can redeem the situation. <clears throat>